Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Nonprofit U, a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Leonard, your host. I'm a consultant to nonprofits and I specialize in community and organizational development. I work with nonprofit organizations to help them make a stronger impact to their clients and communities. You can find Nonprofit U on Facebook and Twitter, and I encourage you to follow us and to comment early and often. Today's hashtags are Nonprofit U, HSI, BEW, and Westside Triage. You can also leave comments on blogtalkradio.com forward slash nonprofit underscore U. The chat room is open, and you can post comments and questions. In order to use the chat room, you must open a listener-only account. You'll find a link to open the account on the page for this episode. You can also email me questions at consulting at ValerieFlinnert.com. We'll be taking questions by phone and from our chat room at about the 30-minute mark or so. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. In the event that you didn't hear me, you will see that phone number on the episode page. Today's topic is mobilizing the community to tackle trauma and opioid addiction. We'll talk about the creation of the Westside Community Triage and Wellness Center, and that center was developed in partnership with the Cook County Health and Hospital Systems, Bobby E. Wright Comprehensive Behavioral Health Center, and Habilitative Systems, Inc., We'll also talk about community-based approaches to trauma, violence, and the opioid crisis. Again, we encourage you to call in with questions at about the 30-minute mark. You can start posting in the chat room right now and emailing questions. Again, my email address is consulting at com. If you want to participate in the live chat, you must open an account, and the link is found on the episode page right underneath the chat room. Again, the call-in number is 347-884-8121. Nonprofit and community development professionals, as well as policymakers, especially those who are involved in behavioral health, are especially encouraged to call in and share your stories and strategies. We would also love to hear from people who may have had issues uh, with substance abuse themselves, if you know someone who has had issues with substance abuse, either in your family, in the workplace, et cetera, et cetera. So since that takes at least half of the population in the United States, I am expecting to get many, many calls. So according to a recent study by the Pew Research Center, about 46% of Americans have a friend or family member addicted to drugs. Issues of substance abuse drive mental and physical health. Domestic violence and crime impact family unity, work productivity, employment status, public health, public safety, education, and just about every fiber of our social fabric. According to a report established by the White House Council of Economic Advisors in November, the estimated cost of opioid epidemic is over $500 billion, that's billion with a B, 
and that's taking into account the cost of health care costs for treatment, criminal justice and law enforcement, reduced compensation, lost employment, and premature death. So this represents the cost related to the opioid crisis alone and doesn't include other substance abuse issues or related issues. So today's guests are Donald J. Dew. He's the president and CEO of Habilitative Systems, Inc., and Dr. Rashad Safir, president and CEO of the Bobby E. Wright Comprehensive Behavioral Health Center. I'll let each of them come to you in their own way and introduce themselves. So, Donald, we'll start with you. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to work for HSI and some of the accomplishments? Uh, Surely, and thank you so much um, for the opportunity today, Valerie. Uh, I was born and raised on the west side of Chicago, and um, I had the uh, opportunity to work at the Mile Square Health uh, Center uh, years ago um, with um, persons such as um, Mrs. Dolores Sexum and um, Dr. Anderson Freeman and many other um, young African-American uh, professionals during that day and time. I mm-hmm. um, went on to attend um, Lewis University um, in Romeoville, Illinois, majored in social work, attended the um, University of Illinois, Jane Addams College of Social Work um, also, and uh, achieved my uh, master's in social work uh, degree there. Um, since that time, after graduation, I've also um, been employed with the um, Community Mental Health Council and actually came to HSI mm-hmm. back in 1984 and uh, served as its first uh, director of um, case coordination. Wow. And look at you now. How large is the organization now? Yeah, we've uh, actually, um, as an organization, been around since 1978. Uh, we grew out of Claire Christian United Methodist Church uh, as part of their community ministry. Um, the staff has grown from just three programs in 1978 to over 40 programs currently in 2018, uh, over 100 staff, uh, you know, a budget in excess of $7 million. And, you know, some of the accomplishments that I think have been noteworthy um, during this time is HSI um, was one of the largest um, providers of child welfare services, dealing with the disproportionate number of African-American children within the foster care system for a number of years, mm-hmm. 12 or 20 years. Um, yeah. Built over, uh, yep, um, we've uh, constructed um, at least um, 160 units of housing for people with disabilities and seniors, uh, funded primarily by HUD and City of Chicago Department of Housing, uh, to the tune of about $20 million and been involved in any number of different uh, major initiatives over the years, over the last 40 years, as we celebrate our 40th anniversary this year, um, from welfare to work to infant mortality reduction initiatives, um, the deinstitutionalization of persons with disabilities from various state institutions, and, of course, the Affordable Care Act. Mm, Excellent, excellent. And thank you very much, Donald. Dr. Safir, the same for you. Let us know a little bit about your background, how you came to work for Bobby E. Wright Comprehensive Behavioral Health Center, and some of the organization's accomplishments. Thank you, Valerie, for having me on this afternoon. Um, I um, received my uh, Ph.D. in clinical community psychology uh, with a specialization in mental health in 1976 from the University of Utah. And believe it or not, mm-hmm. the University of Utah is one of the first programs in the country 
following passage of the Community Mental Health Centers Act to offer such a program. Uh, wow. Very early in my career, I knew that uh, community mental health was something that I really wanted to uh, to be involved in. Um, so I've worked in community mental health in various capacities since 1976. Um, I started out in 1976 as director of research and evaluation for a uh, mental health center in Memphis, um, and following that uh, uh, stint of uh, employment, I became the chair of the psychology department at Norfolk State University in Norfolk, Virginia. It, it was while I was at Norfolk State that I was approached during the Carter administration to what's called an intergovernmental personnel assignment. Um, so I went to Washington to work on uh, national research projects on racism and mental health, and I also mm -hmm. managed a that was called the 2% Technical Assistance uh, Program, which provided uh, technical assistance to community mental health centers that were engaged in deinstitutionalizing persons with chronic mental illness from state-operated facilities back into uh, community-based care. Um, and it was really during that time that I uh, came to know uh, the late Dr. Bobby Wright uh, he and I, you know, developed a friendship, uh, and after uh, President Carter lost the election to Ronald Reagan, my time in Washington came to a close, and so Dr. Wright, um, in his uh, very persuasive manner, <laughs> uh, convinced me <laughs> to come to Chicago. <clears throat> so I came to Chicago in 1981. Um, and uh, I have been here at the agency in one capacity or another uh, for the past 37 years. Uh, I became the president and CEO in February of 2013. Um, so that's kind of my background and where I come from. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of the agency uh, accomplishments, um, one of the, the major things that we've been able to do is to maintain comprehensive nature of the services that were previously funded by federal grants. Uh, even through the transition to fee-for-service, uh, we have uh, maintained a full array of uh, services for persons with uh, mental health-related uh, disorders and substance abuse, uh, including those with, uh, with developmental disabilities. Um, mm -hmm. One of our more recent accomplishments is we implemented a, um, an evidence-based uh, sort of employment program. It's called uh, IPS, which stands for Individual Placement and Support. Uh, it's a, an evidence-based program that was developed out of Dartmouth University, uh, and our agency was selected to participate in that program. Uh, we um, employ people within our agency who have serious mental illness, uh, we provide them with training and we place them with employers in the community. We did so well during the first year of the program, we were awarded an international award for the best IPS program. Um, wow. And we actually, we actually competed with uh, uh, all of the IPS programs nationwide but also uh, programs that were located in 
New Zealand, Australia, Japan, Canada, and so on. So we're, we're very proud of that. Um, we've opened a um, drop-in center for covert consent decree uh, persons who uh, are suffering from mental illness uh, where they mm -hmm. can go and relax and de-stress. Uh, we also offer employment assistance to them through that program. Uh, as well as, uh, you know, just increasing their, uh, their sense of well-being through uh, community outings. You know, they get a chance to go bowling, go to the movies, uh, you know, visit places in the community that they typically would not have access to. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that, that, those are some of the, the accomplishments of the agency. So we are clearly in the presence of greatness, and I thank you guys again for taking time out of your busy schedules. And from what I have heard from both presentations, you have not given us everything, but we really don't have time to um, hear everything that you're involved in, and I thank you so much. So before we get into the meat of our discussion, just want to lay the groundwork um, Dr. Sophia, can you tell us what opioids are and their connection to illicit drug abuse? Okay. So opioids are uh, a naturally occurring opiate that's really derived from uh, the, uh, the poppy. Um, mm -hmm. And the drug, it includes such drugs as uh, heroin, oxycodone, uh, hydrocodone, uh, oxymorphone, fentanyl, which I'm sure you know you've heard about, uh, mm -hmm. and methadone. Okay. Now, mm -hmm. most of these substances are, uh, all of these are controlled substances, which means that you know they have to be um, uh, uh, prescribed by a physician. Uh, heroin uh, is the leading street drug among the. Um, and so, you know, it becomes uh, an illicit drug uh, through the uh, distribution that occurs, you know, within the community, uh, you know, mm -hmm. people selling. Uh, fentanyl, you know, which is basically all, all of these drugs fall within the class of, of, of a, a painkiller. Um, mm -hmm. Fentanyl uh, is, is one that has been used to increase the potency uh, of heroin, and, and unfortunately, you know, fentanyl has been identified as one of the substances a lot of the uh, opioid overdose uh, deaths that we're seeing, you know, in Chicago and, uh, and Cook County. Mm -hmm. So, you know, things like morphine, codeine, uh, you know, all of those are, you know, opioid-based uh, some of them, you know, are synthetic to the extent that they are man-made. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, these drugs, um, um, like uh, the oxycodone, the hydrocodone, you know, those are, are synthetic um, drugs that have been made to uh, act like uh, other opiates. Mm -hmm. So did that answer your question, Valerie? Yeah, yeah, it does. 
And from what I've read, you know, in many instances, people might start off with, say, some of the over-the-counter, not not over-the-counter, but the drugs that are prescribed by their physicians, and then that becomes a gateway to the illegal drugs. I, I don't know, have you observed that in oh, your absolutely. line of work? Yes, yes. Uh, you see a lot of people who you know, following an accident or something, uh, you know, an injury where they're placed on, uh, you know, some form of painkiller, you know, once they get to the point that they start developing tolerance to that drug where Mm -hmm. it's no longer effective, they go out and they Mm -hmm. look for drugs to, you know, uh, uh, create the desired effect that they're trying to achieve. Uh, In some Mm -hmm. cases, you know, gets to the point where they will no longer prescribe the drug, but because they're so highly addictive, you know, it's hard for someone to, uh, you know, just stop using the drug, so they end up looking for uh, some substitute, you know, and typically, you know, those are, you know, readily available on the street. Mm-hmm. So how has Bobby Wright historically addressed the issue? Well, you know, we do uh, drug abuse prevention. Um, mm-hmm. We also provide, uh, and, and prevention, you know, includes going out into the schools and educating, uh, you know, elementary and high school students about the uh, effects of these drugs, making them aware of, you know, what they are and how they affect them uh, both physically and mentally. Uh, And we provide them with some tools to to resist drugs, you know, to learn how to Mm -hmm. basically walk away and say no uh, Mm -hmm. through, you know, play and, uh, you know, various group activities. We try to increase their resiliency around, uh, you know, drug refusal. Uh, we also um, provide level one and level two substance abuse treatment. Uh, level mm-hmm. one is people who have met the criteria for drug abuse, but they haven't quite developed um, dependence. In other words, they, they're not experiencing withdrawal when they start to discontinue use of the drug. Um, they're not uh, using the drug in increasing dosage uh, as a result of tolerance. You know, you use a drug for a period of time and um, tissue dependence develops so that the body needs more and more of that drug in order to achieve uh, the the high that the person is seeking. Okay, so most of these drugs Mm -hmm. work on uh, the part of the brain that's responsible for processing pain and for also um, uh, facilitating the experience of pleasure, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, part of called the hypothalamus. And so okay. you've got kind of a double whammy going there. On the one hand, you know, you get this um, increased sense of well-being that's brought about by the drug, but you also get... Uh, the elimination of any, uh, you know, negative um, uh, uh, experiences with regard to, you know, feeling pain and and what have you. 
So we do a mm-hmm. lot of, uh, of uh, education around, you know, what these drugs are and how they work. Uh, in our level one program, uh, our, our consumers come to attend an individual session once a week. They attend a group once a week. Uh, in level two, we have uh, persons who have already met the criteria for uh, drug dependence. Um, and with them, we try to move them from wherever they are to uh, achieving total abstinence from use of the drug. Uh, that process, you know, we refer, we refer to as harm reduction. Uh, unlike mm-hmm. a lot of other programs, uh, we don't put people on long-term um, uh, methadone. We don't do any methadone treatment at all. In fact, a lot of people come to us because they're wanting to get off of methadone, and we take them through mm-hmm. the harm process. Uh, some of the other work that we do is with um, the Drug-Free Coalition uh, in uh, West Garfield Park, where, again, you know, we're engaged in educating young people about uh, the effects of drugs and also providing alternatives for them uh, that, you know, give them some hope in terms of, you know, being able to better their lives and go on and, you know, pursue some of their dreams with regard to education, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, Yeah. So that's um, those are the things that we're doing now. Okay, that's excellent. So, Donald, before we move on, did you have anything to add to what Dr. Sophia just said? Uh, yes, just briefly, um, and this is primarily in response to um, what we're doing to uh, address as an agency the um, issue with, uh, associated with opiate addiction and uh, trauma and, of course, um, mental illness and related disorders. Um, HSI has been um, operating um, several programs um, to really address these concerns in our community. Uh, We have a halfway house. um, We have the um, Tabitha House Recovery Home, uh, which with those two programs alone, it's a combined 60 beds available for men and women who, you know, are battling addiction. Um, We've got our intensive outpatient alcoholism and substance abuse um, treatment programs that Dr. Safir has already referenced that Bobby Wright also does. And um, we can Mm -hmm. also uh, say that we've been having a primary focus on, um, you know, of course, our recovering citizens or ex-offenders, primarily through drug court. Uh, So as an alternative to being um, uh, certainly uh, detained or incarcerated, um, these persons have an opportunity to go into treatment, which many times they choose that option and they're able to get themselves back on their feet. I should also mention that mm-hmm. we work with Dr. Wilson on some bail bond reform um, because, of course, many people sitting in Cook County Jail could not make their bail and were in need of um, mental health and or, you know, substance abuse and um, uh, treatment. So we were able to, um, you know, get that legislation passed with, you know, Dr. Wilson taking the lead, of course, and um, we're able to get, get the people who had been identified, many, um, not able to make those um, um, bill um, fees to uh, get the treatment that they mm-hmm. needed. We also uh, operate a PATH program, which works with the Illinois Department of Corrections, um, um, primarily providing intensive case management and treatment uh, to persons identified with addictive disorders, and, of course, this helps to prevent any potential homelessness once they are discharged from IDOC. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is some great stuff. And, and it's amazing. 
I I know you guys, but I don't know you. <laughs> you know, we've been in contact with one another for years, and every time I talk to you, literally, I'm learning something new about what you do. So I'm learning right along with the audience, and I really do appreciate your time. Our pleasure, Valerie, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so we talk about trauma all the time, Donald, but... You know, I've come to learn from talking to different people that trauma means different things to different people. But for the purposes of this podcast, can you define trauma so that we're all on the same page going forward? Um, sure. Um, you know, well, fundamentally, trauma is, is an emotional response to any terrible event, uh, like an accident, you know, rape, natural disorder. And usually right after that um, traumatic event, um, our systems go through some type of shock and or denial. And one of the things that we realize after that episode is that emotions are unpredictable. Um, persons may have mm-hmm. flashbacks. We prefer, you know, PTSD. Um, relationships may be strained. There may be a lot of different physical symptoms like headaches or, na- or nausea. So, you know, we also realize that, you know, when we look at uh, these incidents, these accidents, these natural disasters, crimes, surgeries, deaths of loved ones, um, other violent events in our community, that, you know, it really starts to include responses to what we consider to be chronic or uh, repetitive experiences, such as child Mm -hmm. abuse, you know, neglect, uh, dealing with, you know, concentration camps, battering relationships, et cetera. But, you know, I also wanted to um, talk about, because I've been saying a lot when we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, that really Mm -hmm. in the case of the African Americans here in the United States, it's more prolonged. It's, it's been more, you know, terrorism. It's been, you know, prolonged suffering. And, you know, many folks have categorized this as historical trauma. And when they talk about historical mm-hmm. trauma, you know, usually they're talking about a multi-generational trauma that's been experienced by a particular um, cultural group. So, you know, we're looking at anyone, you know, with families who have been marked by severe levels of trauma, poverty, dislocation, war. Suffering has always been a result. So we don't want to just look at trauma, especially in the African-American community, as something that occurs for the moment uh, when clearly a lot of what we're seeing in terms of battling addictions and substance abuse within our community has a historical frame, has an historical reference. And we've got to look at it mm-hmm. from the frame and the lens of historical trauma because it's cumulative, it's collective, it's impacting our emotions, it's impacting our psyche, it's affecting you know, our ability to, to thrive as a people. So, you know, when folks say, you know, are, are quick to um, make uh, or engage in what we call blaming the victims, we have to be very, very careful mm-hmm. about that because so much of what has occurred to us as a people traumatically has been in- intentional, it has been uh, institutional, and it has been, mm-hmm. you know, policy driven, you know, by many um, different policies like the war on drugs, which was primarily geared mm-hmm. towards, you know, people of color within the United States. So we have to look at trauma from all these various perspectives. Okay, good. So it's it's not all in our heads. No, not at all. <laughs> or if it is in our heads, somebody helped put it there. <laughs> oh goodness, you gotta laugh to keep from crying because um, that that is very serious. And and it's interesting too. I think a lot of us are walking around with trauma, and I'll say myself included, for a number of different reasons, and, and we don't really always um, understand it or we're not able to put our hands on it. And I think you really did a, a great job of 
describing what this thing is that just seems so nebulous. Well, it's so important to realize that. Thank you. And, And let me just add that, you know, with this type of trauma, you know, we may also begin to internalize you know, some of those views of mm-hmm. the oppressor. And, and we start to perpetuate a cycle of self-hatred and, you know, a lot of different negative behaviors. So we want to look at, you know, well, what happens as a result of that? Well, there's anger, there's hatred, there's aggression. You know, a lot of it's self-inflicted. And, you know, we want to be able to look at, you know, the causes of, of these kinds of traumatic experiences and realize that we've got to deal with the cause as well as look at different treatment approaches. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Dr. Safir, did you have anything to add to that? Uh, very little. Uh, Donald really covered that uh, quite thoroughly. Uh, just a couple of things I want to point out. Um, you know, a traumatic event doesn't always have to be uh, directly experienced by the person. You know, there's something mm-hmm. that we call vicarious, vicarious traumatization. So, you know, mm-hmm. you can... Um, hear the story of someone who went through this terrible thing uh, and be traumatized by that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We human beings have something that, you know, uh, other, you know, lower primates don't have, and that is imagination. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just through, you know, having an image of this horrible thing in your head set off a physiological reaction in your body that's very much similar to the same kind of reaction the person had who witnessed or who was engaged in, you know, the traumatizing event uh, directly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, and I think that that has uh, some very uh, broad-ranging uh, implications for what goes on in our community um, you know, a lot of us are traumatized by things that, you know, we see displayed in the media. You know, uh, mm-hmm. we're traumatized by things that, uh, you know, we hear other people talking about in the community, but we don't realize it. We don't recognize it as, as being traumatic. We may have some experience that appears to be unrelated to that experience of vicarious traumatization uh, where we don't make the link in, in our mind, like, for instance, someone who, you know, starts to have nightmares, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, the nightmare might not be about uh, a traumatizing event, but you're having nightmares now, whereas you weren't having nightmares before, you know? So that's kind of the mm-hmm. mind's way of, you know, uh, representing these things to our to our ourselves, Um Symbolically, in a way that you know we can kind of you know tolerate it, but it's it's disturbing you know nonetheless. Um, mm-hmm. The other um, thing, and, and this this is troubling for me, um, and that is that the experience of trauma, particularly in the African American community, has become normalized. You know, normalized to the extent that you know some of us don't have the um, reactions that we used to have to trauma, mm-hmm. you know, to see it as, oh, you know, another person got shot, another person, you know, someone else, you know, um, you know, was stabbed last night or whatever, and it's mm-hmm. not as up, it's not really upsetting to us. We don't have the physiological reaction that I think is important because those physiological reactions sometimes 
motivate us to take action. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we go we go through a series of of cognitive avoidance strategies that help us to block the real um, effects of those traumatizing events. You know, there's mm-hmm. some research done, you know, back um, in the late 70s and 80s by um, a uh, psychologist, his name is Albert Bandura, uh, where he had people watching other people being shocked, okay, and he mm-hmm. um the physiological responses of the people who were observing, not the ones who were being shocked, but the ones who were observing the shock. The, the person in the other room was, they were watching through a one-way glass. The person in the other room wasn't actually being shocked. They were, you know, actors. They were acting like, you know, oh, that hurt. They were screaming and, you know, yelling and writhing in pain and so on and so forth. And uh-huh. uh, most of the people who were witnessing the other person who they believe were, were being shocked had increased heart rate. Uh, they, their pulse rates were increased. Uh, they had an increase in what's called galvanic skin response, which is the ability of the skin to conduct elect, an electrical current across the skin. So mm-hmm. they showed that they were being vicariously traumatized by watching this, uh, these other people whom they thought were being traumatized. The interesting thing about the research is that there was a subgroup of the population that didn't have those physiological reactions. And so mm-hmm. uh, being the, the thorough scientist that, uh, you know, he is, Bandura followed up with these people and he asked them, you know, was there something in particular, you know, that was going on with you that you didn't, you know, feel the what other people were feeling? And they shared with him that they were basically tuning out, that they were uh, thinking about something unrelated. One person said that he was, you know, visualizing himself, you know, on a beach. Another person said mm-hmm. that he was uh, thinking about his girlfriend, you know. Now, these, are, these same uh, strategies can be used effectively in terms of of, 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 of treating trauma, but at the same time, you know, there are people who use maladaptive ways of, of engaging in this kind of cognitive avoidance uh, strategy. Uh, so, you know, the, the fact that it gets normalized, you know, says to me that, you know, there are some psychological things going on that people are doing, you know, that aren't necessarily uh, healthy. There's also the transgenerational communicational trauma that I think we need to, to be cognizant of. Um, through some work that I did with the uh, Healthy Families of Illinois, um, we uh, looked at research that showed that uh, young children, uh, even from, uh, uh, from infancy, were responding to nonverbal cues that they were picking up on the part of the mother who was being abused in a domestic violence relationship. So they were reading yeah. facial expressions, okay, and becoming upset mm-hmm. by that. You know, whereas the mother says, well, no, they never saw him hit me. Right, they didn't see him hit you, but they saw the aftermath of it, 
in your face. And so, you know, we, so now we have a whole generation of children who are growing up who have, you know, this trauma embedded within them. You know, someone once said that, you know, the mind might forget, but the body doesn't. Once it's stored, you know, uh, it can be activated at some point in time. And I've seen people who, you know, were traumatized uh, in childhood, totally block that out, and it manifested itself, you know, in their, you know, uh, uh, early 40s or, or, or 50s even. Oh, wow. Wow, there's so much more that we could talk about on that subject, but I, I want to bring us back. And before I do, I, I want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to Nonprofit U, and we're speaking with Donald Dew, the president and CEO of Habilitative Systems, Inc., and Dr. Rashad Safir, president and CEO of the Bobby E. Wright Comprehensive Behavioral Health Center. We'll now take questions from our listening audience and our chat room. Our call-in number is 347-884-8121. If you have any questions, please feel free to call. Again, that number is 884-8121. And you can also post in our chat room. If you don't have a listener-only account, you can do that. It's just a matter of clicking a button and you'll have an account and you can post in the chat room. I think this is a very good discussion. These men don't have a heck of a lot of time. They're busy saving the world, and if I were you, I would take advantage of every opportunity I could to to ask them questions. You can see they're very transparent, very open and honest, and they have definitely made an impact to policy in the state of Illinois, the city of Chicago, and in our local neighborhoods in the cities and suburbs. So, and at any rate, um, I just want to um, get back to Donald. Um, I was reading a report by the Westside Heroin Task Force, and that task force, as you know, is led by State Representative LaShawn Ford. And he said the state of Illinois, in general, has experienced a serious decline in capacity for treating behavioral health issues. And when he says that, he's talking about from a financial perspective. Um, He says the decline has been reduced by about 54% as it relates to state funding. At the same time, Chicago, which accounts for the largest number of opioid addictions in the state, has seen its capacity reduced by 61%. So we've got a greater share of the, the load trying to address it, but we're actually um, seeing our capacity diminished disproportionately greater than the rest of the state. So my question to you is what's driving the decline in the state resources during a time in which the problem seems to be growing? Well, you know, there are just so many different factors that that certainly um, can be attributed um, to this decline. But I do want to compliment uh, State Representative LaShawn Ford and her colleagues for really um, shedding additional light on this issue and continuing to fight, you know, for the um, uh, what we consider to be sustain, um, sustain, substantial and sustainable funding, uh, really to address uh-huh. these concerns in our community. 
um, you know, and they, they have a hard time um, trying to look at, you know, what is going to be the issue of the day, if you will, in the community that's going to receive its fair share of state funding. And, and let me just uh, further illustrate what I'm saying. You know, we've got issues within our community still around infant mortality, special education uh-huh. concerns, the need for um, child welfare services around foster care and adoption. And we just have to continue to remind ourselves that nine times out of ten, whatever is the issue of the day is going to disproportionately impact the African-American community. And we're competing with dollars, you know, at one point in time, HIV, AIDS, competing with dollars, you know, around veteran support services who are experiencing PTSD, then with the homelessness, not issue within the state of Illinois, in particular the city of Chicago. And I could go on and on and on, but just keep in mind, there's always going to be disproportionate impact on the African-American community. Now, Mm -hmm. we are aware that um, the Illinois Department of Healthcare and Family Services did introduce a um, new um, waiver, the Illinois Illinois, um, Medicaid um, waiver, 1115 waiver, for behavioral health redesign. And the entire thrust, if you will, and intent of this proposal was to ensure that there was a greater emphasis on Medicaid funding for six primary areas as it would affect behavioral health. One was around supportive housing, looking at individuals with severe mental illness at risk of institutionalization or homelessness, excuse me, who are currently receiving permanent supportive housing. Uh, Another one Mm -hmm. was for supportive employment services for individuals with uh, substance use disorder, serious persistent mental illness, serious emotional disturbances, et cetera. Another one uh, major area was around services to persons who um, were currently and are currently um, Illinois Department of Corrections, or what they would normally call justice involved, uh, within 30 days of release, trying to provide them with supportive services of a behavioral health nature there. We also okay. were able to um, have included uh, MAT, or Medicaid uh, eligible um, individuals getting medication assisted treatment, um, you know, ensuring that they receive the appropriate referrals and services within 30 days of release. And um, when we begin to think about these kinds of um, supports, these kinds of waiver services, we realize that, yeah, it starts to make a difference and potentially could have significant impact within the community. It was even proposed that we increase the number of crisis beds. And, um, you know, Bobby Wright, you know, operates uh, um, a program where they're providing uh, crisis beds. HSI is providing supportive residential um, service beds. Even proposed in this waiver was um, additional intensive in-home services, such as respite care you know, to help support families and children um, between the ages of 5 to 21 with high behavioral health needs and or serious emotional disorders at risk of transition to higher levels of care. You know, you just heard Dr. Sapir speak about, you know, how children are responding to issues around domestic violence, how they're getting, you know, nonverbal cues of what's going on. Well, the bottom line is that the more we can get these kinds of waiver services identified, supported, and get some public uh, and uh, political will behind it, then yes, it can mm-hmm. and will make a difference. But again, we're competing with all these other areas around funding in the behavioral health category. The only other thing I want to really point out, and the Kennedy Department has been talking about this quite a bit, is that now with the whole push towards integrated health care, we have the opportunity to pay a lot more attention to behavioral health needs. I mean, heretofore, prior to this time, a lot of the emphasis has been on medical concerns, what's going on within the body. Well, we're just so happy that there's been so much more emphasis now on what's going on with the mind 
And we've been saying increasingly that we've got to have consciousness over emotion. We've got to have the ability for folks to be able to cognitively embrace what's going on with the situation and impact the behaviors of their families, community, and loved ones. Because if we don't begin to do that in a very responsive, strategic way, we'll continue to get a lot of what we've been getting. Uh, so that's just one of the things that I think, you know, um, Representative um, Ford and others are really pushing for, emphasizing we need to be involved with, and hopefully that kind of funding is, in fact, approved by central management services, and we'll see some evidence of that as we move into fiscal year 19. Okay, great. So, Dr. Fear, did, Fear, did you have anything to add to that? And it sounds to me like this is really the result of some significant heavy lifting on the part of the community as well. Um, I don't know if, if you want to comment on what it takes from the community to be able to move legislation like that. Yeah, just very briefly, you know, I I also, you know, really uh, commend um, uh, State Rep Representative Ford for the work that, uh, you know, has been done on this issue and for pro providing the leadership in, in that regard. Um, you know, but, you know, I always say that, you know, the proof is in the pudding. And uh, it's a great plan. Um, as Donald just laid it out, it's very, you know, comprehensive. Mm -hmm an integrated, you know, approach to addressing a lot of these issues, you know. Um, but, you know, we have to, as I think as, 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 you know, residents of the community, you know, we need to be aware of these things so that we can hold people accountable for following mm -hmm. through. We, we've had a lot of, of, of great ideas and plans that have been put forth, but, you know, um, it doesn't always end up in our communities, and we have to make sure, you know, that we can uh, engage people, you know, in communities like East and West Garfield Park and Austin and North Lawndale uh, so that they are aware of these things and, and, and they, can, they can push, you know, from the bottom up uh, right. because if they, the bottom's going to fall out. You know, so Illinois has always been at the bottom of the, the rung in terms of funding for social services. Um, you know, we've had a fragmented uh, system of care for a long time. And so, you know, I, the, the possibility that we would have, you know, this, uh, you know, highly integrated system of care, you know, is, is very exciting, but we've got to make sure that we keep, you know, on top of this um, and, and make sure that the dollars that flow from it, you know, flow within the communities who have the least and those who are dealing with the most when it comes to, you know, drug abuse, you know, stress, trauma, uh, and what have you. Okay. I am going to ask a caller. There's a caller whose number is 773-209-4712. I am going to you know, see if he or she has a comment. Sometimes people just call in because they can hear better by calling in. Sometimes people call in because they have a question. But caller at 773-209-4712. I'm just going to ask you briefly if you have anything, any comment that you want to make. Hi, Hi, how are you? 
Yeah, this is uh, I can't. Hi, Hello. how are you, Bonnie? Yes, I, um, I can hear you, Bonnie. Good. Um, uh, good afternoon, gentlemen, and thank you for all your expertise and all the work that you've been doing on this. My question is, uh, I think, I think, Dr. Uh, Safir alluded to people coming to them to try to get off methadone. Um, I'm really interested in what, if you have any statistics in. Once people get on a substitute drug like Suboxone or Methadone, um, what is the chance of them being able to get off that drug and and completely clean? Um, is there a way, is there any kind of a system that you guys have to help people in that situation? Yeah, we, um, you know, the, the, the statistics on people, you know, getting off of methadone are very, very uh, slim. Uh, it takes a really highly motivated and committed, you know, individual to accomplish that. Uh, we use a process uh, of harm reduction, you know, where we get them to uh, very gradually and very slowly uh, detitrate the drug down to a point where, you know, they're lo no longer uh, in need of it. The problem is that the process of harm reduction takes such a long time, and that individual mm -hmm. is dealing with a lot of stressors in the community that contribute to relapse. Uh, so yeah. the, success rate is, the success rate is not that great. Uh, most people, uh, and, and some, I've, you know, I've, I've had this debate with, with you know, some uh, treatment professionals who really believe that the best course of treatment is long-term maintenance um, because the, the relapse rate is also, you know, uh, fairly high. Uh, for those who do get off of methadone, you know, they end up going back to using uh, But we've had some, some limited success with, you know, what I think is a very unique subset of the population who are highly motivated you know, uh, and and you, they come here with that specific goal in mind, um, and they're able to to accomplish it. Um, do you have any actual statistics? No, I'm sorry, I don't. I don't, I don't have any statistics uh, in front of me that I can refer to at this point. I'm just wondering if people, if there's enough attention being paid to getting these statistics, because. I would think that if you're setting out kind of to give up drugs, if that's your goal, you're, you've got a path to follow, and you mm -hmm. have some hope of success that would be a motivating factor for people trying to get off drugs. Yeah, I, would, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. I just wondered if anybody had recommended more research in this area. You know, maybe that's what's needed. Definitely more research is needed. Um, you know, uh, the, the opioid epidemic, you know, um, is one that hasn't received a whole lot of attention. Uh, the, again, the use, of, the use of methadone and the long-range effects of being on methadone you know, has not received a lot of attention as well. Yep. And what about Suboxone? Yeah, Suboxone, again, that, that's fairly new. Uh, you know, we're seeing some anecdotal data that suggests that, 
you know, is fairly effective in, uh, you know, preventing relapse uh, uh, on opioids because it really blocks, you know, the effect of, of the drug. So if you're taking Suboxone and, and you do ingest the drug, you're not going to experience the high. Uh, so and those who get off. And then how do you get off of Suboxone? Because that, I understand, is more addictive than anything. Well, again, I mean, that's that's the question. You know, it's like uh, some people say that, again, you need to give that person enough time that they can build up enough uh, resistance, if you will, uh, develop, uh, you know, a sober support network, uh, really make some serious lifestyle changes, um, and then begin the process of, you know, weaning them off of Suboxone. But, you know, the treatment is only, hasn't been around long enough to really see, you know, uh, how that works in the long term. Okay. So thank you so much, Bonnie, for calling in. I really, really appreciate your contributing mightily to this discussion. We have all of, we have less than 10 minutes left. And I really do want to talk about a special project. Um, Dr. Sophia, can you give your contact information out uh, so Bonnie can follow up with you um, if she has further questions? Okay. Yes, Bonnie, you can reach me at 773-722-7900, or you can email me at rsophia, that's Sam. A A F as in Frank I R at B E W C B H C dot org. And I'm gonna do something to change the length of that email address. It drives me nuts. <laughs> okay, great. So I, I I guess we can finish up with a discussion about a pet project for you guys and I'm really excited. To hear, and then you know, so we'll start with you, Donald. I, I think that you and Dr. Fafir have both realized that the West Side, we do, in fact, need a savior, but that savior is us and nobody else. And in fact, HSI has dealt with behavioral health, trauma, and public safety issues on many fronts. And one strategy you're working on in partnership with Dr. Fafir and the Cook County Hospitals and health system is the creation of the Westside Community Triage and Wellness Center. Can you give us an overview of this initiative? Um, and then, you know, Dr. Safir, feel free to chime in, too, after Donald gives his spiel. Okay, thank you. Well, you know, simply stated, this is a, um, a project and initiative of um, good folks who um, care and love the community, um, come together to try and make serious impact and change occur. And it, it's, it's happening in a way that um, has gotten the attention of some uh, supporters like Cook County Health and Hospital System and the Behavioral Health Consortium of Illinois and, you know, elected officials like Representative Ford and Representative Lilly and Congressman Davis and a lot of good, good folks coming together to say, you know, and, and we cannot be remiss without mentioning our county commissioners, um, you know, Richard Boykin and, and Dennis Deer, and as well as Robert Steele, you know, before his untimely passion. All of these folks have been working at multiple levels, at the federal, state, local, county levels, to ensure that more resources uh, come to the west side. 
And, you know, the stars basically aligned. Um, you know, Dr. Safira had the um, vision of creating a triage center on the west side of Chicago. He and I had a conversation, um, and, you know, I mentioned that we had a facility available um, that had been shut down um, because of funding uh, reductions for key programs um, uh, in the state of Illinois. And so we had a, a building just sitting vacant there that was sitting in close proximity in West Garfield uh, to Bobby Wright, between Bobby Wright's main headquarters and HSI. And, um, of course, county came together and said that they would be willing to work with us to launch the site. And we certainly saw the importance of um, bringing together, um, you know, our expertise, you know, the collective legacy of our respective organizations that could really make a difference and have some impact within our community. Uh, looking at the snowstorm triage, we're tra basically trying to um, have an um, impact on reducing the recidivism rate. Um, in fact, we're trying to reduce the numbers of folks who have been going into Cook County Jail uh, when they really need to be getting treatment. We've been trying to have an impact on persons who have been going to the emergency room or institutionalized. And we're saying, look, we can get these services performed and uh, done right here in the community. We don't need to continue to send our folk into institutions at greater cost to the state. It makes no sense. Why don't we serve our folks in our own community within our own resource? The other thing that I just want to quickly point out is that we have the opportunity to, of course, employ people from the west side in this facility. And I know we're running out of time, so I want to you know, yield some additional time to Dr. Safir. Okay, and thank you for that. Okay, Dr. Safir? Yeah, thanks, Donald. Uh, in addition to what, uh, you know, Donald has indicated, uh, yes, it's a cost to the state, but it's also a cost to the family, uh, you know, and the loved ones of those who are, you know, being incarcerated at Cook County Jail and going into inpatient facilities. You know, there's a type of trauma associated with that. So, you know, by preventing some of these, uh, you know, persons from, uh, you know, being incarcerated and ending up in inpatient facilities, you know, we're also, you know, indirectly, you know, uh, addressing the issue of, of trauma. Uh, the, the, the final thing I want to say is that, you know, uh, Donald and I, you know, decided that we couldn't wait for the um, uh, triage center to open uh, before we did something about the problem, particularly with uh, the holidays approaching. So on December 22nd, um, we uh, had uh, what Donald uh, uh, called a call to action, uh, where we had over 100 people in attendance. And we actually trained um, over 100 people in the administration of naloxone, or Narcan, if you will, uh, to prevent oh, wow. opioid uh, death, deaths during the, uh, the holiday. Uh, at the same time, we launched a mobile triage uh, program uh, where we actually have a central call number uh, that, you know, people can call and someone will be dispatched to the uh, uh, situation where they're experiencing crisis and provide crisis intervention services, you know, uh, on the spot. Uh, we're working with the 11th district and the 15th district. Uh, Commander Johnson from the 11th District uh, and Commander Cato from the uh, 15th District uh, have been very supportive of our efforts, uh, and they've actually been utilizing our services. Uh, so we've got boots on the ground right now, uh, and if someone, you know, is experiencing a uh, crisis related to substance uh, use or uh, a mental health crisis, I'd like to give you the number. It's 
745-2620. Call that number. Someone will answer. They'll do a brief uh, assessment of the situation, and uh, they'll put you in touch with someone who can who can help. And if that's in your home, uh, if it's at you know the emergency room, if it's at the police station, wherever you find yourself uh, in crisis, uh, you know we're here ready mm -hmm. and willing to. Okay, great. Can you repeat that number, and I'll make sure that I include it in the slide deck too. Seven seven three. Seven four five two six two zero. That's twenty four okay, hours. Great. Okay. So that's a helpline of sorts. Yes, it is a, a helpline, oh. hotline, crisis line. You know, however you refer to it, someone's going to answer, and we're going to send help. Okay. So how should I label that? Is that through Bobby E. Wright or through the West Side yeah, um, Triage Center? Right. This is through the West Side Community Triage and Wellness Center. Uh, it's the Mobile Crisis Intervention Team. Okay. I will make sure that I add that to the slide deck so when people listen to this show and they're watching the slide deck, they will see the contact information there. Okay, so when does the triage center actually open? Donald, are you there? Uh, yes, I am. And um, we're actually um, on a timeline right now um, to have it open uh, early spring 2018. So we're targeting March of uh, 2018. Okay. So March of, of this year. Okay, awesome, awesome. Is there anything else that you guys want to add about this program? I know we're a little bit over, but I really think that this triage center is extremely important. Well, the only thing that I would add at this point is that we also have a wellness component to it. You know, Naturally, we're trying to reduce uh, mental health stigma within our community. We're also trying to deal with the opiate addiction uh, prevention efforts, and we also want to help um, you know, build resiliency and support for our children and families. Um, of course, as we've discussed today, um, we've been experiencing generational trauma, and we're at a point right now where we need to empower our families more. And so we're looking at providing additional uh, workshop and educational seminars and trainings um, that empower and uplift and inspire, um, you know, stress management, reduction exercises, mindfulness sessions, yoga, tai chi, any number of different uh, activities oh, and uh, exercises and resources, that, you know, nutritional support, uh, dealing with the social determinants of health, looking at employment, sports, housing, referrals, anything that has been problematic for our families um, in terms of them needing additional resources, we're looking at this being a resource center for our families as well. well. This is awesome stuff, awesome stuff. So it sounds to me from that list of things you've given, you don't necessarily have to have a direct issue, you know, with with substance. I call it substance abuse. I think you guys have a new term for it. I can't remember what the term is, so forgive me if I'm lagging in my terminology with substance abuse. But it sounds to me like you don't have to have a quote-unquote problem to be a part of this wonderful new community. Is that true? That is true. Uh, you know, I mean, people experience stress on a daily basis at work, at home, mm -hmm. uh, even while they're playing. 
so we're just trying to make sure that people know. They may not be directly um, experiencing the stress or trauma, but may know someone that is. So they can come to the center and get information that can be informational and beneficial for those that they care about. Right. Okay, awesome. All righty. We've come to the end of our show, and I'd like to thank again Donald Dew and Dr. Rashad Sophia for being our guests. Gentlemen, do you care to share any parting thoughts and tell the listening audience once more how they can get involved in this work and how they can reach you? So we'll start with you, Donald, and then we'll end with you, Dr. Sophia. Well, let me just say that we, again, um, thank you, Valerie, for this opportunity, and I'm especially um, happy that uh, my colleague, Dr. Sophia, and I have the opportunity to work together. Um, I'm really encouraged that um, this effort is gaining uh, momentum and support from various stakeholders um, politically, uh, socially, religiously. Um, you know, several ministers have uh, expressed interest in supporting our efforts, and this, you know, really serves as a situation. You know, both Dr. Sophia and I have uh, recently experienced um, hearing shots and actually seeing uh, someone uh, die outside of our respective facilities. I heard shots fired, left outside the window, 32-year-old, you know, African-American male is laying outside. You know, this is not a movie. This is not a video game. People are dying in our streets, and there is a sense of urgency about this issue around mental health. And we've got to make sure that we support, embrace, and provide the kinds of uh, interventions that can make a true and lasting impact within our community. Again, this situation did not develop overnight, and we've got to get busy without hesitation to make some interventions occur. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, Dr. Sophia. Yes, thank you, uh, Valerie, for having uh, us on this afternoon. Um, You know, Donald is so thorough in his comments that, you know, when he finishes talking, there's not much left to be said. Uh, And one of the things I I appreciate uh, in working with him, because I tend to be a bit more quiet and reserved. Um, But one thing I want to say is that, uh, you know, we can't overemphasize the importance of mental health in everything that we do. You know, it is the common denominator. I don't care whether you're talking about drug use, uh, violence, domestic violence, you know, all of those uh, uh, negative events that occur within our community have mental health implications. Not that people who are suffering from mental health-related disorders are committing crimes because they're less likely to commit crimes than than the general population. Uh, But, you know, I just don't believe that some 15-year-old who would shoot another 15-year-old in the chest is experiencing good mental health at the time he makes that decision. And I think that we've fragmented it because... We've stigmatized mental illness, okay? We have a lot of people who could benefit from mental health intervention that are not getting it. Um, You know, we've set up a service delivery system where you have to have a diagnosis and you have to meet medical necessity in order to get reimbursed. The problems that we have in our community go way beyond that. We need to be able to go out, and and this is one of the reasons I'm very excited about, you know, the Westside Triage and Wellness Center,
because we're going to be able to reach that population that uh, may not meet medical necessity, but they, it's necessary for us to be able to uh, provide them with the tools that they need, you know, to lead more productive lives. And, uh, and that's mm-hmm. what this is all about. Why we get up and come to work every morning, and uh, you know, thank you for you know allowing us the opportunity to get the word out, and you know, thank anyone who may be listening at this point, you know, for tuning in and um, you know, allowing us to share our thoughts. Well, thanks again, and I'd like to thank our listening audience for listening to Nonprofit U Blog Radio Talk Show today. This episode will be available for download within about an hour. And be sure to tune in next week. We'll have David Young. David is the Director of Training for Housing Action Illinois. He'll talk to us about some of their capacity building programs. So until next week, I will talk to you later. And again, Donald and Dr. Sophia, thank you, and you take care. Thank Thank you. you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.